0: you know we've been talking we 've been in the book of isaiah we've been talking we talked last week about the fact that we have collisions in our world when we 're out going about our lives we have these times when we collide with the things of this world the things that are not exactly good the things that are that are are bad for us and are what 's called reprobate which are are not of God so the the righteous the the good hits with the with the bad but the One thing I didn't say, because I was saving it for this week, is the fact that not only does it happen when we're in the world, but it also happens when we're in the church. The darkness of the world does not stop at that door. Many times we bring it in with us. Many times there are people who intentionally bring it in with them. Many times it's because we're human. And we say things we don't realize, and we're butting up against the goodness and the darkness. Our church is a microcosm of the forces of good and evil. If you don't think that, that there are that evil spirits and evil people cannot be inside a church, you're sadly mistaken. They can be. And I'm sure they are, right now, here. That's okay. So is Jesus. That's all that matters. Because greater is He that's in me than He that's in the world, and He that's in you than He that's in the world. Last week we also touched on the fact that in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that we are being transformed. We're being transformed in one degree to another. And each of us are at a different place. We are, we are all being changed to be more like Christ, but we're not all traveling at the same speed. And many times, and I'll be honest with you, I feel like I'm taking three steps forward and two steps back. The goal is to make sure we don't take two steps forward and three steps back. But we feel like it's just, we're, everybody's being transformed, so we're constantly in this, this, this process of change. And change means growth, and growth means pain. It's just the way life is. But how can we tell? How can we tell the darkness from the light? Isaiah was dealing with this in his time, and he's going to give us an answer. He's going to answer it in the first two verses of Isaiah 57, but he's also going to readdress it in verse 21. So let's begin with verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 57. I just want to say that these verses have so much depth and meaning to them I'm not even going to begin to even scratch the surface of them. But I'm I'm going to glean some very important um, ideas from them, just even with the small amount of depth I'm digging into them. He says, The righteous man perishes. Everybody dies, but the righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. We'll talk about that in a second. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. I want to pray. Father, we thank you for Isaiah and for your word. I pray, Father, that you help us to see it. Help us to see it in its context, to see how you are working in it and continue to work in it. Because your word is living. It's good for for reproof and for training, help us to see you as we read your word. And we pray this by your grace, Amen. The trend that Isaiah is looking at, and that he is seeing, is the fact that righteous people are dying, and most of us miss the significance of it. We mourn for those who die. I I, I, I have a year, two years of just people around me that I cared deeply about passing, dying, and I was mourning, and I still mourn for them. But these verses are actually telling us that we, we got to understand why this happens. We should, we should be able to find peace in the midst of death. Why? Because we really don't understand that what God is doing when He calls someone home, He is calling them to peace. He, he's telling His great He's being gracious to the saints. He's telling them, Hey, you you've spent enough time in this world. You have walked in darkness, fighting it off, you've struggled enough. It's time for you to rest. Remember, this is the righteous. That he's talking to. He's delivering them from this evil world. He gives them peace. They'll never have a divided heart again. They're never going to have a heart that's as hard as that rock. Why? Because now they have peace, they have rest. The evil can no longer touch them. They are free. You know, Paul tells us in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is what? I can hear you. Gain. I'm getting older. You need to talk louder. Gain. Thank you. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What's it? What do you mean it's gain? I have all, I have all these things in this world that I love. Why is, to, is dying gain? Because now I don't have to worry about them anymore. It's peace. This is why we don't grieve like those who have no hope. To borrow from the parable from last week, you know, God, God, what He does is He gathers His wheat. Sometimes He has to pick some of them early. Other times, at the end, He's going to gather us all. He's going to gather us as wheat. But what about the rest? He's talking about the righteous. He's saying that the righteous die and we don't realize, we don't realize that they're being called to peace. But what about those who are not righteous? What about the those who are the weeds in the garden? Cuz the other trend that he sees here is that many of God's people are finding themselves in spiritual idolatry. This is the this is the collisions that happen inside the church. Verse 3 and 4 says, But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? <laughs> he says, what do you, you, know, Whom do you open your mouth and stick out your tongue to? Then he calls them children. Because isn't that what children do? Isn't that what some adults do? Yeah, when they're acting like children. See, the Jews in Isaiah's time were constantly tempted to mingle the true faith of Yahweh with the Canaanite religions of the other nations. It's called syncretism. It's a problem in the church today. It's still a danger. It's as dangerous as it was then. We see it in the use of pagan tools like the Enneagram in churches today and the spiritual pl- practices of places like Bethel Church in Redding, California. You want to know more about that? I can give you all kinds of resources on what's going on there from people who actually went there and have left and said this is wrong. Because see, God is a jealous God. He, he doesn't like it when his bride goes wandering off after somebody else as any good husband would be upset about it. He gets angry, passionate, when we, when we turn towards wickedness and paganism. And by doing so, we mock the Almighty God. We stick our tongue out at Him. He says, who are you mocking? Do you realize who you're mocking? And we deserve to suffer judgment. In verses 5-10, through we're going to see that the wickedness of the Israelites, we're going to actually see, he's going to list out what they did. That's what he says. He says, you who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door of the doorpost you have set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed, and you have gone up to it, and you have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not stay. It is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. We get a whole plethora of lists of the pagan practices that were going on. You who burned with lust among the oaks. There was many of the religions where they would go out and, and they would openly Perform sexual acts out in the open, out in nature. You slaughter your children in the valleys. You can have one guess as to what that is and what we do today. How many children have lost their lives to abortion? And we justify it. Christian People who claim to be Christian justify it. There's no justification for killing a baby in the womb, none. The religious rites of the Canaanites uh, involved sacred trees and pander to the sexual appetites of those worshiping their gods. We see many times that the high places of worship to the Canaanite gods were set up on hills because it was believed that the gods resided in high places. You could spend many, many hours studying about the fact that Eden was actually not in a plain. They believe it was on a high mountain. The worship of Molech, the god of the Ammonites, was associated with child sacrifice. They would actually sacrifice. And this is actually something the Israelites started doing. They were sacrificing their children to a false god. To a god who was not god. Offerings were given in an attempt to appease the gods of the Canaanites, but also the kings in foreign nations, They went so far as to do necromancy. Necromancy is contacting the dead. Now, I asked this question last week in Sunday school class. Is magic real? Yes, it is. And I'm not talking about illusion. I'm not talking about what David Copperfield does. Okay, that's illusion. That's sleight of hand. I watch them. I can tell sometimes how they do it because you watch them. Watch this hand while this hand's doing all kinds of things. They distract you. I'm talking about real magic. It is real and it is not to be practiced. Scripture why would God tell them not to practice something that's real if it wouldn't hurt, if it wouldn't hurt them? It's real. Curses. Tokens to bring good luck. We're not to. We are to avoid it at all costs. We are not to contact the dead. All these rituals, these rites, these offerings, having to do all these things would actually wear you out. You can't, you you have to keep up. Okay, well, what do I do? Okay, today is this day. This is what I got to do for that. This is what I got to do for this. this. All these things it would it would actually wear you out trying to keep up with all of the rituals you had to do for these other gods. Because it wasn't just one god; it was multiple gods. When Yahweh says, "What? Be still and know what that I am God," <laughs> we don't have to go through a bunch of rituals. We do some of them because it reminds us, but it doesn't appease God. God is happy with us for the most part. He's happy for who we're supposed to be. And when we turn to him, he's very happy with us. But all this all these requirements that they had to do did not stop them. It becomes a lifestyle. I've watched a lot of different videos from people who f- were formerly in the occult. And they talk about some of the stuff they had to do. And it's just like they don't, you know, once they're free from that, it's, it's like taking that rock out of the box. It's gone. It's a heavy load that's taken off your back. It's no longer just something that you do. It becomes part of all that you are. And yet, as it happens, we're sitting here, and it's like God is silent. Don't you, you know, when somebody does something that that you know is wrong, it's like, don't you just wish that God would just take care of it? Take care of them right now. Remember, the disciples were with Jesus, and the people ignored Him in this town, and what did they say? They said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire? And He says, no. Brush your feet off. Move on. It's like, well, that doesn't seem fair. Shouldn't God smite them immediately? Until we start thinking about, whoa, wait a minute. If, if, if it happens to them, it's going to happen to me. And that minute I do something I'm not supposed to, I'm going to be smitten. I think, or smoted, whatever the word is. <laughs> Smitened. So sometimes it seems that God is silent. And this is what it says in verse 11 it says, Whom do you dread and fear? Who are you afraid of? So that you lied, and did not remember me, and did not lay it to heart. Have I not held my peace, even for a long time, and you do not fear me? See, see, God is, God is perfect, and God is judge. God has every right to destroy us. But in His grace, He remains silent. In His grace, He tarries doesn't pass judgment immediately. God doesn't want anyone to not believe in Him, but many will not. God doesn't want anyone to not trust Him and to perish, but many will perish. So God is patient with us. And it seems like He is silent as we see the wickedness in this world and we wonder, how could God allow such things to happen? That's a question many times atheists will ask you. Well, if, if your God is so good, why does He allow people to die? Why does He allow children to be molested? Why does He allow, allow babies to be killed and women to be raped? say, like God, God, that breaks His heart. But He's silent because of His grace. That's not because of Him. Those things don't happen because of Him. Those things happen because of us. And because of this world. And because of the evil that's in this world. 19th century atheist Robert Ingersoll would, many times in a debate, he would, he would challenge God with words of rather extreme blasphemies. He would say that in the Bible it says that God's going to strike people down who blaspheme him. And then he'd go into a torrent of blasphemies. And then he says, Okay, I give God five minutes now to smite me. And he'd sit there, and the clock would tick for five minutes, nobody saying a word, waiting for God, for the lightning bolt to come and to strike him. But God never struck him down. Very dramatic. But the reality is is what Ingersoll was doing he was actually testing God's patience. And guess what? God's patience is infinite. God is patient with us. God continually forgives us when we turn to him and repent. He's waiting. He's patient. He constantly calls that person who is a sinner. He's calling them over. And over. when we would have given up a thousand times earlier, he is still calling them. So the Ingersoll is dead now, <laughs> but wasn't killed by God. I think he died of natural causes, but he's not testing God's ability to destroy. He's testing God's patience, and God's patience never ends. In the book of Exodus, this is what God says about himself. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is God speaking to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so those moments when I sit and I think, wouldn't it be good if God would just take care of this right now? Just wipe them off the face of the earth. And then I remember, God is patient, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And praise God, I'm so glad he is, because I should have been wiped out a long time ago. Praise God that he is patient. But the time is coming. The time is coming when there's not, there's not going to be any time left. In verse 12, he says, I will declare your righteousness in your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. He's telling them, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to declare your goodness, all the things you've done, good and bad. And when it comes down to it, you're not going to have anybody to cry out to but your idols. But what are your idols? Your idols are powerless to save you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. See, in in our world today, it seems that there are those who are not following God and they're prospering. Think about that. Think about all the people... Think about the top 1% of the world as far as richness goes. And many of them, most of them, are not faithful to God. In fact, many of them are doing some pretty evil things. And yet, in the end, that's not going to save them. It may seem like those who are non-believers and sinners in this world are having all the fun... In the end, they'll have no place to turn to but their idols. And they'll find that those things, that money does not solve your problems. That money doesn't give you eternal life no matter how many times you're frozen cryogenically. We've got to remember what wisdom David gave us in Psalm 37. He says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not Envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. I want to make sure you understand that when it says commit your ways to the Lord. And delight yourself in the Lord, and and He will give you the desires of your heart. If you're delighting yourself in the Lord, your desires are His desires. Meaning you desire what God wants, and He'll give them to you. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Don't worry about it. Don't fret about it. Doesn't mean ignore it, doesn't mean deny it. It means you need to know what's going on in this world, but it doesn't mean you have to worry about it, because in the end God's going to take care of it. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. But the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Very similar to what it says in Isaiah. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. You see, God wants to dwell with us. Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah 57, verse 14, and it says, And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is, a, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, God God does not put barriers in our way because the way is open to Him. He's saying don't put any barriers between us. No obstacle is going to be placed in your way if you're truly seeking God. Jesus removed all the barriers. He removed the barrier of sin. That's gone and death. Death no longer has power over us. If we accept Christ, the way is fully opened as far as God is concerned. So what's the hang-up? Why do we struggle? Because of us. We place barriers in front of us. They're called strongholds that keep us from going to God. And I'm not just talking those who don't believe. I'm talking about believers. I have strongholds in my life that if I allow them to continue to grow, I'm going to be in trouble. We are the hang-up. We treat God as the dead end instead of the goal. We slow down our process by seeking the other gods of this world. And you say, well, there are, there's, there, there's no other gods. We don't worship any idols. We sure do. Success. Ourselves. Money. Comfort. Entertainment. Video games. Food. There are many, plenty of gods for us to seek after. But God always keeps the way open through Jesus Christ. But how do we find him? Where is he? In these verses, we, we see he's in two places. Well, he's He's high. He's in the high and holy place. Because it says up here, he says... Uh, let me go back up here a little bit further. Uh further Verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. God is high. He's lifted up. We cannot reach Him by our own abilities. He's high and lifted up. But He dwells among the lowly and the contrite of hearts where we can go. So we find God is to... We find him by humbling ourselves, taking that rock and submitting it to him, that heart that is hard, and we humble ourselves, and God finds us. A humble and contrite heart is not just, you know, the kids kept saying, well, how do we get rid of it? We break it, right? Get a hammer and break it. I don't know about you, I don't like a broken heart. (laughs) But it's not just a broken heart. It's so much more than that. It's a heart that is actually crushed. I imagine that if we took that rock and we broke it up into real tiny pieces that we could very easily fit it all inside of that box. Crushed, ground to a powder. That's what our hearts need to be like. If you remember back when, in the beginning of Isaiah, when Isaiah, he encounters God, what does he say? He says, Woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. That's the kind of heart we need to have. We need a heart that says, Woe is me. I am a sinner. God God can destroy me if he desires, and he would be just. But he gives me grace. Woe is me. Or we could be like Jeremiah who said, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes like a fountain of tears. And we're not crying because of all the other things that are going on and the people that are causing... We're crying because of us. because I'll cry because of me and the barriers I place in front of him that keep me from him. Or a heart like Daniel, when he confessed before God that to him... And all his people belong shame and and, and confusion efface. Shame. In the Beatitudes, Jesus addresses a contrite heart. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. See, God, God dwells in broken hearts. God dwells in contrite hearts, hearts that are broken, originally broken by sin. But then he gives us a new heart. Because, see, God is not like us. We, we like to be upwardly mobile, right? You know, we, we, I, I, when, I, when I first was young, I bought this kind of smaller house. I bought a 800 square foot home. <laughs> and I had a, a minimum wage job. And then we want to move up. And drove an old, old car. Then I bought my first new car. Now I'm back to again where I don't want to buy a new car because I don't want to spend $80,000 for a new truck. So I have my old truck that's going to be 20 years old next year. In two years, it's going to be 20 years old. We want to be upwardly mobile, but God is not that way. He doesn't value upward mobility. He values downward mobility. He came down to us. He wants us to reach down to those that are hurting, those that are lower than us. Pastor, there's no one lower than me. Oh, I can give you a whole list of people who are lower than you if you just look for them. Tuesday night, our small group is going to be watching a video from a gentleman who's a... A thinker, a professor, he's been a professor and he's a debater. He's talking about what, why the church has failed culture. And one of the big things that, that in that list is the fact that we have forgotten our mission. What's our mission? Our mission is to go and make disciples. And we forgot it. We want to fill our church with church people when we should be filling our, filling our churches with the hurting, the lost, the sinners. Yes, it's dirty. It's going to be messy. But that's our mission and we fail. God feels very comfortable staying at the high and lofty. But it's at the low places that he finds people that are open to him. So, how does he respond? Verses 16 through 19. For I will not contend forever. We know his time is coming where he's not going to do it anymore. He's not going to be patient. Nor will I always be angry. So he's not going to just not going to be angry all the time. For the spirit will grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of this unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and I was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. So God was angry with us. Really angry. He was angry with the Israelites. But it's not going to last forever. Because God took that anger. He took the record of all our wrongs. He nailed it to the cross of Christ. And now He gives us freedom. His anger is gone forever. He is no longer angry with us. His wrath is gone. and no longer going to be suffering His wrath. He's healing us from our wayward ways. Paul tells the church at Rome, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But what about the weeds? Verse 20 21 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up the mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is the world. A tumultuous, wicked, difficult place to be. Churning, restlessness, constantly in motion. And the wicked are never satisfied. They never find what life is truly all about. They never find the rest. They never experience peace. They're always worrying about something. If they've got lots of money, they worry about their money. The restless always looking for the next best thing. They're looking for the escape that will always just a little bit outside of their reach. And what is their final reward for all this restlessness? Not just a life of anxiety and perpetual desires or never being filled, but an eternal life of fire, an eternal life of darkness, of weeping, of gnashing of teeth in hell. No place in life and no peace in death. So God has given us an invitation. He has seen our ways. He has promised to heal us. He knows our ways, how we live, what we think, what we do. Nothing is hidden from him. But just as the verse says that I told the kids, it says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We need to repent of our restlessness. God's not going to bless our wickedness. So the sooner we repent, the sooner we're going to find peace. And to understand that the turmoil of this world is actually spiritual. I know it seems physical. It's actually spiritual. The battle that's going on is spiritual. People are out of fellowship with God and do not understand what life is all about. They're seeking after the wrong things. As we collide with them, we need to give them peace that is only found in Jesus Christ. Because true peace is only found in the kingdom of God. We have an awesome... Opportunity to experience that peace in Christ today. But we must repent of our restlessness. We must repent of our turning away, of the strongholds we place before us.